History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to episode 333 of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. On this episode, we're going to one of those big ones, Kelly. I'm sure it's a place every one of our listeners has heard of. I'm certain. This was suggested by listener Astrid, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. I was going to wait to do this one until we could actually go there and see it for ourselves and investigate it ourselves. Sure. But I was like, well, by the time we get back to West Virginia to do that, we... It may be a while. Yeah. You know, especially with COVID-19 and all. But exactly. We, you know, we could do a follow-up. Sure. And we tend to do a lot of places that people haven't heard of or that are smaller. So I thought, why don't we throw one of the big ones in here? Sounds good to me. But before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Sharon, Tyler, Janine, Monica with a K, Maya, Vicky with two Ks and an I, and Jade. Jade, where have you been? Exactly. <laughs> Jade is like an OG. She has been listening to the show almost from the moment that we started it and supported it almost from the moment that we've started it. And I guess she just wasn't in the spectacular. I guess crew. not. I was actually questioning whether she had been hacked because I thought she was already there. I know. This request can't be right. But thanks for joining us, everybody. And now this moment, Noddity. In 1942, a British troop in Rupkund, India, made an alarming discovery that came to be known as the Mystery of Skeleton Lake. And that is just what they found, a lake full of skeletons. Only this lake was frozen. This lake was 16,000 feet above sea level and set at the bottom of a small valley. The troop waited for the summer thaw to investigate it properly, and they were left with two big questions. What year were they from? And what killed some 200 people? Since the war was on, many suspected that these were Japanese soldiers who were sneaking through the air and died of exposure. Archaeologists studied the bones and found that they were much older, so the skeletons could not belong to Japanese soldiers. The dry, cold air had preserved the bones, and scientists found that they dated to around 850 AD. Now they needed to figure out what had killed these people. Was it some kind of exposure? Had there been an epidemic? Was there a natural disaster? Was this some kind of weird death ritual? Modern DNA tests helped scientists to figure out that these were two different ethnic groups and based on clothing and items found nearby, that this was probably a traveling group of people who were being led by a hired group of local guides. Studying the skulls revealed little deep cracks and the only other wounds found were on the shoulders, leading experts to believe that the blows came from above. But it didn't seem that weapons had made the wounds. This was probably a weather event, and based on stories we hear about baseball-sized hailstones, it's easy to believe that being out in the open valley during one of these storms could lead to massive head trauma. 
That is what scientists concluded, and an old Himalayan folk song lends some credence to that theory because its lyrics describe a goddess raining death down on those who defiled her mountain with hailstones that were hard as iron. Finding a large group of skeletons frozen in a lake some 1800 years after a hailstorm killed them all certainly is odd. Grab your slippers, hot chocolate, flashlight, and maybe even that baseball bat. And now, this month in history. month of April, on the 8th in 1974, Hank Aaron hits his 715th career home run. Aaron was born in 1934 in Mobile, Alabama to a poor family. He practiced by hitting bottle caps with a stick and made balls and bats out of anything he could find laying around. Aaron dreamed of being like his hero, Jackie Robinson, and just like Robinson, when he finally made it into the Negro American League in 1951, he experienced some overt racism. For three months, he played for the Indianapolis Clowns, and then he got two offers from the MLB, one from the Boston Braves and the other from the New York Giants. He went with the Braves because they offered him $50 more a month. His teammates called him pork chops because he ate them for almost every meal. 1955 was a banner year for him in which he hit with a 314 batting average with 27 home runs and 106 RBIs. Each year, he did even better. In 1969, Aaron passed Mickey Mantle's total home runs and moved into third place on the career home run list, behind Willie Mays and Babe Ruth. When Aaron closed in on Babe Ruth's record, he started receiving death threats. He actually feared that he wouldn't live long enough to surpass that record. Aaron broke the record on that April day in 1974 in front of a record-breaking Braves crowd. Aaron ended his career with 755 home runs, and he retired in 1976. Creepy. That's the one word we hear from everyone who's ever visited the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. This was a place of immense sadness that was for many years home to the mentally ill and other unfortunate souls. The name would change later to Weston State Hospital. The hospital closed in 1994, but the building reopened as a historic site offering tours. And as is the case with so many of these places, one can investigate the paranormal here. And there's so many stories of unexplained experiences coming out of this place that it's hard to not believe that this is one of the most haunted places in the world. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. West Virginia is a gorgeous state and one full of mystique. We've shared before about the legends of this state that is completely engulfed in the Appalachian Mountains. This is a state of coal mines, rolling hills, and trees. I remember driving through it and we were just like, oh, wow, this gorgeous. place is gorgeous. Yes. There are many well-known haunted locations here as well, with this being the home of the Mothman, Flatwoods Monster, 
Moundsville Penitentiary, and Lake Shawnee and Harper's Ferry, both of which are on our suggestions list. The settlers who founded Weston, West Virginia, seem to have a tough time choosing a name for their town. The town was founded as Preston in 1818 and changed to Fleshersville right after that, and then finally they chose Weston in 1819, and that was the one that would stick. Weston Incorporated in 1846. The Museum of American Glass is here with over 20,000 pieces on display, including historic glass and art pieces. This would also be the place chosen to build the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. The former asylum is located at 71 Asylum Drive and is the largest hand-cut stone building in America, and the second largest in the world, falling just behind Moscow's haunted Kremlin. Which we have done an episode about. Absolutely. Stonemasons came from Germany and Ireland to cut the stones. As was the case with many of the asylums HGB has covered, Trans-Allegheny was designed to follow the Kirkbride plan. Thomas Kirkbride thought of mental illness in a different way than many people of his time. He believed that the mentally ill could be treated and cured. This could be facilitated with moral care, which is just basically good food, lots of rest, exercise, light, and getting out in nature. And I know that's good for all of us right now, especially during COVID-19. Absolutely. I mean, this is just kind of a no-brainer. This is how you should be caring for people. Definitely. And he came up with a design that would work better for asylums and wrote about it in his book, On the Construction, Organization, and General Arrangements of Hospitals for the Insane, with some remarks... It's a long title. It is. With some remarks on insanity and its treatment. This design was a flattened V-shape, branching out like stair steps on each side. This would allow for ventilation and sunshine for every room. One side of the V was for men and the other for women, and the outer reaches of the wings were reserved for the toughest cases. So basically, if you were to look at this from above, it would be kind of like when you're looking at a flock of birds that are flying in a V-shape. Kind of has that look to it. Certainly. Or like bat wings or something. Architect Richard Andrews designed Trans-Allegheny according to the Kirkbride plan. Construction was begun in 1858 using prison labor and would not be completed until 1881. It's a lot of years there. Certainly is. One reason for the delay was the Civil War. During the war in 1861, the Union's 7th Ohio Infantry took over the asylum and called it Camp Tyler, and this then became an important military post. Despite not being completed, the first patients were welcomed in 1864. The asylum was meant for a total of 250 patients, but far more would end up being housed here, as was the case with every asylum. Yeah, they're always overpacked. <laughs> ever talked about. They just piled the people in there. Yep. Studying the architecture of the asylum, it's easy to see the Gothic and Tudor Revival style influences. There are Tudor arches, drip molds above the windows, and the very distinctive curvular linear gables, which is what is seen at the top front of the Alamo. I don't know if you've seen pictures oh, of the yeah, Alamo. Oh, definitely. So kind of that top that it has, that's what a curvilinear gable is. There is a central clock tower that was completed in 1871 that to me looks a bit out of place. It's painted white, so it's kind of offset from the rest yeah, of the stone cut odd. stuff there. <laughs> and it just looks like it was kind of plopped down on top of it. it huh. I don't know. It just looks weird to me because it doesn't match everything else. Yeah, it's definitely out of place. Segregated rooms for people of color were added in 1873. When construction was finished, the asylum was like its own little community like all those that came before and after it. There was a vegetable garden, a dairy, a waterworks, a gasworks, and this place had three cemeteries. Wow. So they had a lot of people dying there. The apothecary in the old Civil War wing offered an assortment of medicinal items from Thorazine to heroin. Great. To bourbon. Okay. Whatever All right it takes. then. <laughs> Good <laughs> grief. 
Things started out good with positive intentions, but this would unravel over time. By 1880, there were nearly 500 more patients being cared for than the hospital's maximum of 250, which basically three times as much as what they should have had. Yeah, and that was pretty early on. Right. These numbers just rose until there was a peak of 2,600 patients in the 1950s. Clearly, this caused overcrowding and poor sanitation. Yeah, when you see pictures of it back at that time, it was just basically... Remember the pictures that we saw for the Spanish flu where they just had cots all in this big gymnasium? Yes. That's what this was. They just had cots laying in these rooms just full of people on top of each other. Yikes. Obviously, not just the mentally ill were housed here. People could be sent here for a number of reasons, including epilepsy and addiction, and even very trivial matters like a husband who just didn't like his strong-willed wife talking back to him. Women could get committed by their husbands for reasons like disappointed affection, imaginary female trouble, medicine to prevent conception, and time of life. Isn't that lovely? Yeah, I mean, I heard Sherry Brake is one of the experts on this location. She's written a book about it, and I've heard her speak a number of times. And at one of the Haunted America conferences, this was the topic that she discussed. And we're going to talk a little bit later about some of the really weird things that people would get committed for. But she said this was a real easy way for a lot of men to get out of their marriages because maybe they wanted to have a mistress or leave their wife or whatever, but didn't want to go through the whole divorce thing. Right. They would just have her committed because it didn't take much to get her committed. Well, we've heard it multiple times for other locations as well. Mm -hmm. It's just crazy. So he would just get her locked up and there was no way for you to get out of there. Unruly patients were often locked in cages. In 1913, Trans-Allegheny became Weston State Hospital, but the name change did nothing for the conditions. In the 1980s, the population was lowered. The hospital was closed in 1994 when another hospital was built. For many years, the buildings on the campus were left abandoned and many areas were damaged by vandals and the elements. The Weston Hospital Revitalization Committee, a nonprofit 501c3 organization, was formed in 2000 to help preserve the buildings. Joe Jordan bought the property for $1.5 million in 2007, and they've put together a museum and offered historical and ghost tours ever since. His daughter, Rebecca Gleason, is now the operations manager. So if you've seen any of the TV programs that have featured this, you probably have seen Rebecca in that because she's usually the one who's leading them around. Right. Many forms of therapy were used on the patients and doctors like to experiment. There were cold baths, electroshock therapy, insulin shock therapy, bloodletting... And confinement cribs. One of the darkest stains on the history for Trans-Allegheny was its West Virginia lobotomy project headed up by none other than Walter Freeman. And for those of you who haven't already heard it, the Stat Podcast did a series featuring Freeman back in 2017 that was excellent. I can't remember, had five, six, seven episodes, something like that. I mean, Karen, Karen, the host, covered him very thoroughly she even talked to one of the men that he had lobotomized. So it was it was very fascinating to hear that interview. And just to, this man was disgusting, absolutely disgusting. I believe, you know, there are supposed to be several different rings in hell, according to Dante. Right. I'm sure that there is a Freeman ring now. So we've, we've <laughs> added imagine. one on where he's getting lobotomized for the rest of his afterlife. Certainly. This project started in the early 1950s and was authorized by the West Virginia Board of Control. There was a control group of 228 patients who were subjected to transorbital lobotomy. The procedure led to four fatalities, two of them due to hemorrhage and two to dehydration. 
After a year, 85 of the subjects were released from the hospital. Wow, look, they're cured. Oh, my God. (laughs) The main goal of this project and for even doing the lobotomies was to help empty out the hospitals. So it wasn't really to help these people in any way. It was, we got to get these bodies out of here. So let's just lobotomize them. Igus Moniz, a Portuguese neurologist, pioneered the method and Freeman adopted it in 1936. He was the one who named it lobotomy and he's the one that developed what we consider to be the barbaric transorbital version of the lobotomy. And I I just can't even watch when they're showing. I I, I just can't. I just can't. You know, I can't handle Zach Baggins, as you know. Right. But one of the things he said when they were doing this, because they did a Halloween night live, I think it was like a seven hour broadcast from here. Yeah, I remember. It's one thing that he absolutely cannot watch. Mm-mm. And I think everybody is the same. Every time I see any of those videos, up, I have to look it's away. Absolutely horrific. So how they ever actually did it to human beings. <sighs> it was basically using an ice pick through the eye, beating it with a mallet to get it into the skull and severing the frontal lobe from the rest of the brain by moving the ice pick around. You know, just kind of stir up the front end of that brain. <sighs> I, can we stop? <laughs> <laughs> I just can't. Most patients did not consent to the procedure. They also were not put out for it. So they were awake for this. The project ended in 1955, and there seemed to be no positive outcome. Violent patients were docile, but they also were basically catatonic. Can you imagine? Of course they were. Almost everybody who got these kinds of lobotomies, as a matter of fact, uh, was it Rosemary Kennedy that ended up getting a lobotomy? The sister of John F. Kennedy? Oh, I think you're right. I don't... I don't know if she had a transorbital, but she had a lobotomy and it basically, she spent the rest of her life in an asylum. And when I say catatonic, it's not necessarily that these people are in like some kind of a vegetative state. Some ended up in a vegetative state. Yeah, catatonic usually. But catatonic is just when you see people kind of wandering down the hallway with a blank look on their face. Right. They're just just not there. mm -mm. Some of the things listed as reasons for being committed were asthma. Great. You could put me into an (laughs) asylum, Kelly. Would never do such a thing. Epilepsy, dementia, tuberculosis, addiction, seduction. I'm not exactly sure what that means. <laughs> I don't know either. Over oversexed? I'm not sure. <laughs> Egotism, bad whiskey? What I'm thinking is these were things that led to people having to be committed. So maybe they got what they right. said was some bad whiskey and it messed with Perhaps. them. Perhaps. Indigestion. Well, you can commit me then. <laughs> <laughs> Doubt about his mother's ancestors. Hmm. I have no idea what that's supposed to mean. Loss of arm, change of life, menstrual derangement. Now that change of life. Was the menstrual derangement. Well, isn't that menopause? I would imagine. (laughs) I guess you can put me in for that one too. Yeah, goodness knows. We all, all all the female persuasion. Now menstrual derangement. I definitely had that. I could tell you that. (laughs) Childbirth. That could drive you crazy. Well, sometimes, yes. (laughs) Disappointed love. Deaths of sons in war. And how horrible to get Mm -hmm. committed because of that. Yeah. Overstudy of religion, domestic trouble, laziness, snuff eating for two years. I mean, if you're eating the snuff, snuff? I would think you'd have more stomach issues than psychological. Reading too many novels. Yeah, we don't want to overeducate ourselves. Masturbation. Okay. We know that makes you crazy. Isn't that what all the mothers (laughs) told their sons? (laughs) I do that. You're going to go crazy. Fits and desertion of husband. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Kelly, I was looking over the audiobooks that Mort has ordered from Kobo Audiobooks, and I'm really disturbed. Oh, no. 
Did he get something on gross anatomy or Victorian death practices or <gasps> not another crime scene insects? No, no maggots. They're all romances. <gasps> oh my gosh. I'm sure that's why he's so excited about his new funeral floral arrangements. Kobo Audiobooks has made it easy for him to go down this path and fit more reading into his life. Well, Kobo does have a huge catalog of audiobooks with originals and bestsellers. Yes, and it's so easy to start. You can start a free 30-day trial, download the free app, and select a book and start reading. And the book is yours to keep even if you cancel. And every month after that, it's just $9.99. And you can choose an audiobook from the catalog regardless of the list price, which is a lot cheaper than most other audiobook subscriptions. It definitely is. And don't forget, there is another way to enjoy Kobo audiobooks. Listeners can use the code HISTORY40 to get 40% off of a select audiobook curated by Kobo's audiobook experts. To get started, visit Kobo.com forward slash history goes bump and you can start listening to Kobo audiobooks today. Again, to get started, visit Kobo, K-O-B-O dot com forward slash history goes bump. Oh, tiptoe from the garden by the garden of the willow tree and tiptoe through the tulips with me. Oh, Mort. Thirteen buildings still stand on the property. The total acreage of the property, Kelly, is an ominous 666 acres. I mean, what are the chances that this place that is supposedly right? a portal to hell, <laughs> open to all these spirits, is set on 666 acres? That's crazy. It is. <laughs> there are countless ghost stories connected to the place. They all seem to start after the hospital was abandoned, but that doesn't mean that there were not experiences while the asylum was still open and had patients. But how do you equate a haunting coming from somebody who could be schizophrenic, paranoid? Maybe they really are seeing ghosts and you're just thinking this is a part of their psychosis. Right. Could be. I tend to hope, though, that whatever you dealt with in life, you're not dealing with that extreme after death. But that all remains to be seen. Oh, so you're wondering if some of these spirits are still psychotic or have other issues in the I'm, afterlife? I'm hoping that they don't. I don't know. Based on a lot of these places that we have covered, it seems like sometimes yeah, that stuff gets like carried over. Affected. I'm just hoping that they're not affected to the extreme that they were in life, I guess. No. And it makes me hope that if it is something like that, it's more of a residual thing. Than right. Exactly. Intelligent type thing. Because, yeah, I mean, you would hope that death would free you from whatever issue you had Sickness, here. Right. Many ghost programs have featured this location from ghost hunters to ghost adventures to portals to hell to paranormal lockdown. Several areas that can be toured and investigated include the operating room, apartments, and morgue. Trans-Allegheny could be straight out of a horror movie with dim and dingy hallways full of peeling paint, crumbling floors, and broken windows. And even though it has been undergoing extensive renovations for years, it still looks as though it were abandoned. The experiences that people have run the gamut of everything we have heard about from every other repeatedly haunted location. You've got your cold spots, strange sounds, disembodied voices, apparitions of doctors and nurses and patients and what's crazy is 1994 doesn't seem that long ago to me 
No. And it, the condition of the buildings, mm-hmm. I mean, it just, I can't even imagine. It must have been in some pretty poor disrepair, even when it was still open. I have to believe that because if you think about it, let's just go back to something that we could equate it to when we graduated from high school. Sure. Our high schools don't look like this. No, definitely not. And yes, when you have things that are abandoned and they get worn down and you have vandals and everything going through. But right. But still, when you're when you're looking at the photos of Mm -hmm. the locations, I mean, even just up along the ceiling, everything, it, it just looks like it has been worn down for years and years and years, much longer than 1994. Well, and if you think about it, these people were not getting proper care. Right. They were overcrowded. So there's no way that you care if the pe- the paint is peeling off of the walls, yeah. if you're not even taking care of the humans that are in those walls. Exactly. So yeah, I have a feeling this was just crumbling for a long time. The other interesting thing is a lot of these places that we have been in or like Waverly Hills Sanatorium that I'm thinking about, they all have these stories about a creeper or a crawler or some kind of weird right. manifestation. Seems like almost every one of these has at least one of them. And Trans-Allegheny has one of them, too. And it's like, what What are those things? Is it just, is it somebody who had some mental illness and so they crawled on the floor or on the walls Could or be, some kind of a lot of times, thing? Yeah, a lot of times they're saying that they're crawling across a ceiling mm-hmm. and things of that nature. Is I just some... wonder if it's like a manifestation of all the, the pain and the psychosis and, and all that kind of thing just manifesting. Into, Making a spirit? Right. Okay, so here's something that's really interesting. <laughs> what? You didn't help me with the last bonus cast, which was no. about the spirits from the Black Death. Okay. But remember, I told you that while I was studying the different ghost stories for that, that there was one that came up that believed this shadowy figure might have been a ghost personification, to use that word, for okay. the Black Death. Oh, oh, okay. And then I wondered huh. in that bonus cast and asked the executive producers who listened, what do you guys think right. about can a spirit be manifested from a sickness? Yeah. I mean, could COVID-19 have a spirit? Oh, good grief. I hope not. Could <laughs> the Black Death have a spirit? Right. Smallpox. All of them. Can yeah. this be a spirit? Because when we look at the Bible and there's the four horsemen of the apocalypse or whatever, and, you know, one is like pestilence or something. Right. Is that a spiritual manifestation of a sickness? Could be. Or could it be maybe some kind of tulpa? Now, that's interesting. I hadn't even thought about that angle because that is people manifesting a spirit through your con- your, your conscious, your projection, right. your thoughts. And if you get enough, like a group of people, just like Slenderman, people wonder if this thing that was a fictional creature that was created for a creepy pasta. Right. So many people were thinking about it that it manifested into some kind of real entity. I mean, the mind is a powerful thing. Yeah. So it does make you wonder in these asylums or sanatoriums, hospital situations where you had a lot of people that had some kind of common issue, especially when it leads to sadness, depression, that kind of thing. Is there a way that all these people in that same setting with the same feelings and emotions manifest one entity? And not only that, but even people, you know, since it's a a tour hotspot, People Mm -hmm. want to tour it and they're just expecting something in regards to that type of manifestation. Mm -hmm. And maybe they're creating the tulpa also. Mm -hmm. They're expecting to see something like that in regards to the experiences that everybody that had lived there previously went through. Yeah. Things that make you go, hmm. Hmm. (laughs) We'll never have the answers, I'm sure. But it's just these things that I wonder about. And I definitely am thinking about 
having us do a bonus cast looking at, because a lot of people have wanted me to do a second episode that pertains to ghosts in the Bible. Definitely. And I'm like, that might be an angle to look at. I love that episode. And I think that's something that we definitely need to explore further. Not a biblical scholar, but I sure love to look at that stuff. And you're a pretty good biblical scholar. <laughs> look at all the fringe <laughs> you, stuff that you, goes with you it. You studied all of that. You are very good at being able to recall. Well, and I look at things that most people like in their Bible studies, they would have been just studying the basic history. And I wanted to get into the weird Right. Because the Bible is way weird. People just don't It is. Know. It is. There's <laughs> plenty of ghosts and all kinds of... Uh, that That book is so full of crazy stuff that I laugh now when people are like, oh, don't look at the Satanic Bible or don't read that book on the occult. It's going to do something to you by reading it. It's going to curse you or something. And I'm like, have you guys are, really read your Bible? Right. There, because there's so much That to thing be... is, is full of as much dark or whatever occult type stuff as your book on the occult. I agree. To me, I the agree. Bible's the most supernatural book that was ever yeah, written. Yeah, definitely. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Kelly, you and I found another really fun podcast we've been enjoying listening to. We certainly did. This is the History or His Story podcast. Did you know that William Taft invented the treadmill? Or that Napoleon loved musicals? Or that Elvis wrote the Brady Bunch theme? Did you know that the previous three statements are false? Regardless, we have your new favorite podcast. History or His Story is the new podcast from the Bramble Jam Podcast Network. It combines the love of history with the fun of a game show. It's history, camaraderie, and the idea of tooth truths and a lie all rolled into a podcast. Dan is a former high school principal and a 15-year high school history teacher. He takes this background, does the research, and tells his two best friends three themed stories from United States history. One of the three stories is completely made up. His two buddies, along with the listening audience around the world, has to guess which story is his story. Whether it's the Wild West, the Roaring Twenties, sports, pop culture, or every major war, you'll laugh and learn at the same time listening to history or his story. Kelly, I know the one that caught my eye, the first one I listened to, was themed Monster. For obvious reasons, yes. <laughs> you listened to that one too, correct? I sure did. It was fantastic. It was right up our alley and our listeners' alley because it was all about some kind of supernatural occurrences that might have happened during World War I. Another one I really enjoyed was Presidential Pranks. I think it's a lot of fun because he tells the stories in such a great way that even if you think you know the history, you might get thrown off and actually guess that something that is truth is a lie. I've had a lot of fun listening to it. You can join in on the fun by listening and subscribing to History or His Story wherever you're listening to this podcast or head to HisStoryPodcast.com. That's HisStoryPodcast.com. All right, let's talk about some of these ghosts, shall we? We shall. Jim James was a former patient who liked cigarettes. Investigators are usually able to coax him into communicating by offering him one. Marissa Cascino visited the asylum in 2018 and wrote an article for The Washingtonian sharing her experiences during an investigation. Jim was one of the spirits she believed she had interacted with, and she wrote, We placed a mag light on the floor and asked Jim to turn it on. The light was Julia's, but I inspected it and it seemed totally ordinary. A few beats passed, then it came on, by itself. I offered Jim a cigarette to turn it back off. It went dark. Now, what I love about these, and I've got a couple of them here, I love when I find these things. This is just a regular article that, of course, comes out in October. 
all the <laughs> yes, big papers, course. whether it's the New York Times or here the Washingtonian or whatever the newspaper is, they all want to have their creepy ghost articles in October. And they send their journalists off to go, hey, go do a ghost tour or go to this haunted place and see what happens. So that's what you have happening here. This is just some girl who's a journalist writing for this. And she's like, okay, they want me to go to Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Right. I don't think anything's going to happen. And here they did the flashlight experiment. And she's like, I looked at the flashlight and I was like, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. Just picked it up at Home Depot. (laughs) Yeah. She's like, it it was the tour person's flashlight. And I looked at it and it didn't look weird or anything like that. And then she offers a cigarette and it turns off, you know. Right. So she was a little bit like, wow. The thing that's cool about it is... Since we've started investigating, we've had our own personal experiences with that, where they were completely interactive with us in regards to what we were asking. So when I see this now in terms of stories and reports and everything, I don't always believe it on all the TV shows because it's really hard. But for a general commentary in this newspaper, I tend to believe it more readily just because we've had our own personal experiences. Yeah, there's going to be another one that we're going to discuss here in a minute. And it again, we have uh, somebody from the New York Times. Well, why don't I just go ahead and share that right here and then okay. it'll continue what you're talking about there. Eddie is a former patient who liked to play poker. He seems to like to communicate with flashlights and was documented doing so during a visit that the New York Times paid to the location in 2013. The author of the article was John Searles, and he found himself wondering if his guide had some way of controlling the flashlight. And as you were saying, Kelly, when we would go and do these investigations, we would see this flashlight that would turn on with the experiment. I remember the first time it ever happened, I was doing an Orlando ghost tour and we'd gone up into this, I think it was called the Treetop Bar or something in downtown Orlando. And he'd set this flashlight over on the stage and asked for it to turn on and it would turn on and it seemed to pertain to what he was saying. It was the first time I'd ever seen it in person. I'd seen it on Ghost Hunters and stuff. Sure. And I'd always been like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Open-minded skeptics, but more skeptical than (laughs) open-minded. So here I'm seeing it in person and I'm an open-minded skeptic. So at first my brain was like, whoa, that's cool. Then I went, wait a minute. Right. I don't know whose flashlight that is. Is there some kind of, and I'm like looking around the room. (laughs) Is there a way, like they bring people up here all the time. So do they have it rigged? So in my brain, I'm thinking that was cool, but maybe it was rigged. And so I didn't fully buy into it. And we've done a couple other investigations, same thing, where it was like, I don't think they rigged it, but I don't know. But until you've actually bought your own maglite, you have unscrewed it to a certain point and set it down and had it turn on when you've asked a spirit to turn it on and had it turn off when you asked them to turn it off. And you know, it's your flashlight. You've unscrewed it and done whatever. Right. It's not random, randomly happening. No, when, it's when, pertaining to your exactly. questions. Yes. You're like. Holy crap. And that's why when we did the Squirrel Cage Jail, we were so excited because Absolutely. it was like, holy crap, this really works. Yeah, and that even was crazy. when you hear total skeptics say, well, it's some kind of heat right, there's expansion, a turning it on and turning yeah. it off. I'm like, but how it is it happening right when you're asking specific right. questions? It can't account for that. Or at the Villisca Axe Murder House when Dolly's getting ready to go outside and says, I need a light. She yes. reaches for the flashlight and before she touches <laughs> it. It turns on. It's like the kids are going, here's your flashlight. Right. And that happened multiple times. It wasn't It happened just more than once when she asked for a light. So, And even at, was it Greenwood Cemetery? Uh-huh. It, when I was, yeah, when I was talking to the kids. at The, the nursery area? Yeah, the yeah. nursery area. And we were talking to the little girl and asked if she'd turn the light on and bam. Yep. That's where these people are at. They're like, 
mm, I don't know. Maybe they have it rigged in some way. So that's sure. what he's thinking. He's thinking maybe this guy has a way to turn that flashlight on and off, that there's something nearby that's doing it. But then he continues. They decided that they were going to be spending the night. And you can't stay overnight in, I think, the most haunted area is supposed to be like where the morgue or whatever was at. And you can't stay there or whatever. Well, he had convinced Rebecca to let them do it probably because he was with the New York Times. Oh, wow. So he's there with his boyfriend and they're standing outside of it. And his boyfriend's like, uh, no. <laughs> I, I can't am, say as I blame him. I am not staying Although I overnight. I still want to be investigating. Not in there. So they stayed in a hallway down, down the way. He says, as soon as we set up our cots, a strange noise, like something heavy being dragged across the floor, started coming from a distant part of the asylum. And Thomas, who's his boyfriend, sat up and asked if I had heard it. At first, I told him that it was coming from that ghost-free waiting area, which was not far away. Then we heard the sound again, this time unmistakably coming from the space near that rusted cage door that led to the lobotomy area. When we heard the sound a third time, louder than before, Thomas bolted. (laughs) He's out! (laughs) (laughs) He actually came back with Copperhead, which was the nickname of their tour guide who was with them. Okay. The three of us walked quietly with our flashlights through a series of rooms, some with old hospital equipment still in them and bars on the windows, until we entered a room that had what looked to be roofing material on the floor. Copperhead stepped on it with his boot, and we heard that distinctive dragging sound. We were in the off-limits part of the asylum where no one else was supposed to be. So that meant the noise we had heard had to be otherworldly. I couldn't help but feel as if we were in a Scooby-Doo episode, and at any moment we would figure out who'd been trying to scare us away. Those menacing kids and their <laughs> you, dog, too. You darn kids. <laughs> How cool. This is a New York Times writer who's decided to go here and stay overnight at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. He is a skeptic. He doesn't believe this. They hear dragging noise. They're both sharing the experience, so... It's not like you're hallucinating hearing a sound. Right. And coming out from the lobotomy area, I would have figured it was a body being dragged. Mm, makes me think. <laughs> and like a residual. the only way, I'm assuming that they had to go get Copperhead because he was the only way they could access the area since it right. was off limits. So exactly. they clearly knew nobody was in there walking around unless it was somebody who could just be in there without needing to have a guide with them. Right. Or a residual. Or something residual. It definitely yeah. could have been something residual. Although what I find interesting is maybe it was just a residual sound of dragging. But since moving the roofing material on the floor sounded the same, it almost seems like something was moving that roofing material on could the floor be. in a physical definitely way. could be. So was this a full-bodied apparition? Trying Again, to mess with them. <laughs> I'm always asking, can spirits, even though they're not fully manifested, still touch things? Kind of like the movie Ghost with Patrick Swayze. Well, we didn't see anything behind me when my hair was played with at Squirrel Cage. There was absolutely nothing behind <laughs> you. So they clearly seem to be able to touch things, <laughs> even though they're not fully physical. Yeah. The apothecary in the Civil War wing repeatedly hosts black or dark figures or masses. This is said to be a very haunted area of the main building. Guides claim to hear disembodied voices and doors slamming. One night, a guide witnessed a door slamming against the wall over and over, and there was no one near the door. Another guide had the most traumatic event he had ever experienced in the pharmacy one night. His name is Mike Heath, and he was assaulted by a spirit. He came through the door and felt four fingers press against his back and push him forward in a violent way. It was the first time that anything in the building had touched him. So this is a guy who's a guide. He's never been touched in the building before. He's taken a group through. They're all standing in a circle. He comes through the door and something pushes him right into the middle of the group. 
I would have turned around thinking it was somebody in the group with my fists up. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, it's you, Kelly. Maybe, did I trip? Hey, now. I wouldn't have felt that up there on my back, though. <laughs> yeah, but the feeling of those fingers pressing against the back and pushing, and there's nobody right. there. Yeah, but what was that? And it's kind of interesting, because usually if you were a tour guide, they're a little bit more comfortable with you. So sure. maybe they were just tired of him and said, okay, this time, Mike, you're getting it. Possibly, or maybe he was insulting at some point. Who knows? People make comments inadvertently, you know, in regards to spirits that are supposedly in these locations, and maybe that spirit got fed up. Yeah, I didn't watch the the entire Ghost Adventures, because I wasn't going to sit there and watch seven hours of this former live event. Right. But just the way that Zach was conducting himself, as he usually does, hollering uh, at these yeah. spirits and stuff, I'm like, boy, it would have been fun to have him just get picked up and slammed against a wall by something. <laughs> If anybody deserves to get assaulted by a spirit. You're terrible, but I agree. <laughs> <laughs> the Women's Auxiliary Building is the second oldest building on the property, and no one is allowed access in this building. The building is in real sad shape, so it's not surprising. The show Paranormal Lockdown did get to go inside on episode one of their first season. Nick and Katrina caught a very clear EVP answering yes when they asked if they'd seen a figure standing in a room here. So what happened is Rebecca's taking him around. She takes him into this building where nobody else is supposed to be able to go. When they first come in, Nick thinks he sees something out of the corner of his eye, which is how a lot of people describe seeing a apparition. Right. Is usually they see it out of the corner of their eye. I've never, ever trusted that because I see things out of the corner of my eye all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of hard to discern. Yeah, so I've never trusted anything like that. I mean, I'll be cleaning a house and then all of a sudden I'll think there's somebody over there and I'll look and I'm like, Oh, that was weird. But I would never be like, I wonder if it was a ghost. They're the ghosties in the house. Yeah, I just assume it's some weird reflection, refraction, Eyelash. something. <laughs> yeah, anything. But anyway, so Nick decided that they would do an EVP session to see if there was somebody there. So that's what they did. They asked, had there been somebody standing in this room? And there was clearly this yes. I heard it myself. They then got a no when they asked if the spirit knew it was dead. They also felt an electrical charge and the owner, Rebecca, who was giving them the tour, had goosebumps on her arms. So they were all kind of standing close to each other. And as they were getting the answers to this, they started feeling kind of this. I think everybody Energy. knows what it feels like to have an electrical charge kind of around right, you, like right. static electricity. And then she held up her arm and you could see the goosebumps on her arm. Hmm. It was hard to tell the gender of the voice on the EVP. Nick and Katrina returned to this building the next night with their geo box, which is I don't know how to describe it. To me, it's kind of like an upgraded spirit box or something. It sounds really, really creepy. Yeah, it does. Because it just has this kind of weird echoey refraction in the background that almost sounds like voices the whole right. time and some kind of weird noise. I don't really like it because it just... It's unnerving. Yeah, it's... When you spirit boxes to already are unnerving right. and hard to listen to. <laughs> and this one is even harder to understand. But they did seem to pick up two voices. The first said hello in a female voice. And the second was male and said, don't say a word. Hmm. So it was like they were like, hey, is anybody dun, dun, here? Dun. And a female steps forward to say hi. And then there's some male there. Right. Was this a former guard or who knows? Another male spirit there saying, don't talk to them. Right. Up on the fourth floor, paranormal lockdown caught the creepiest thing I've seen, if it was the real deal. This is a floor that Nick was afraid of because he had seen a shadow figure up here during a previous visit. He spent the first night up there in complete dark with a camera on him that had night vision and there was a sound that he didn't make and is hard to describe, kind of like a banging. When the crew was up there earlier, the cameraman and Nick both heard something say, shh. On the final night of their 72 hours, the cameraman is taping Nick and Katrina and then he hears something and sees something behind them slithering in the dark along the floor. They played it over and over. Diane and I watched it and it is strange. 
If it wasn't some extra person on the property crawling slowly across the ground, then I don't know what the hell it was. Both Nick and Katrina seemed shocked to see it when the cameraman replayed it for them. So I lean towards legit, and it does give one chills. It was really weird because the cameraman usually doesn't stay overnight with them. He just kind of does a quick little let's go through. Right. And he, he won't stay overnight they in these haunted places. Yeah, they set up the, the camera, I think, on like a tripod kind of thing or they're holding Yeah, it. so they have their own camera. So usually he's out. So for him to see something, because he's not a paranormal investigator, usually these are just crew people who are like, I'm doing my job. Right. And I always find it more interesting when they have something happen to them because they're not supposed to be part of the equation. We're not even supposed to know they're there, really. I <laughs> yeah, mean, you that's know the they fourth are. wall. <laughs> yeah, you know they are, but you're really not supposed to know they're there. And so generally, you don't even see this guy. Well, all of a sudden, he's like, what is that? It looked like almost like a childlike slug. Uh-huh. It looked like a slug slithering along, but then you'd see like an arm come out and like pull like it, it was crawling with front mm-hmm. arms. Mm-hmm. It was it was creepy. As and what was weird <laughs> is they, they hear the noise and, and they're, he's like, what what is that? What was that? Because he has some kind of thing in his ear. So I think it kind of enhances the sound for him. So he's hearing something, which I think is he's hearing the slithering on the ground. Yeah. He probably hears it through the camera. Yes. Which amplifies. It's got everything. a big mic on it. Sure. He hears it. And you can see both Katrina and Nick are like, you know, frowning, like, what are you talking about? And Katrina kind of looks behind her. They're not seeing anything, but he is seeing it through the camera lens. Right. That's what makes it interesting. I just got chills again. (laughs) I know. It did. It it made me like freaked out. Yeah. I don't think he could see it with the naked eye. They couldn't see it, but through the camera lens, they're seeing it. Now, you might think, well, this maybe is some kind of weird refraction or whatever. Okay, it's dark. They have the night vision stuff on. And the camera wasn't moving. No. And what was weird about it is this thing, which looked like a human mist, is kind of what it looked like to me. Or like they said, it looked like a slug or that's kind of the way the way it was. It looked like a slug with a baby head and then the arm kept coming out and dragging. Yeah. It, I mean, it, they described it as slithering. And that's what I would say. Yeah. It, it looked like it was slithering across the ground. It wasn't Very like a person odd. crawling on the ground. It stops halfway across because what's happening is they're looking, they're shooting down a hallway Mm -hmm. and it's not very far down the hallway. And it's like this thing is going from one door to the next across the hallway. Right. And so you see it, it gets halfway across the floor right when they're like, what's that sound? It's almost like, oh, they heard me and it stops and (laughs) looks like it looks towards them. Katrina turns around and you can see that she's like confused. I can't see anything. Mm -hmm. She looks back at the camera, still kind of looking like what? And then you can see this thing continue across the ground, basically the crawler, the creeper, whatever you want to call this thing. And so then he takes the camera down and is like, I recorded it. And they start watching the playback on the screen on the camera. And both of them were so like shocked. And I mean, Katrina said exactly what I did when I looked at it up on the TV. I was like, what the bleep is that? <laughs> and that's what she said. What right. the bleep is that? <laughs> And I mean, it just seemed awfully legit. You know, you can kind of tell when people are faking something. And that seemed to me like we were getting her legit reaction to what was that? Right. I don't know what it was, but it was very creepy. It was very weird. The other thing that lends credence to it to me, Kelly, is that if this had been like, say, a real person and they were pulling a fast one and had a producer or something, hey, go to the end of that hallway and kind of slither across the ground pulling yourself. It was not clear. No, it wasn't. So I would think if it was a real human being, it would have looked even more like real like something fully right, manifested. Right, there'd, there'd be some some more definition yeah, cause to if, it because first, there really wasn't other than where it seemed like there was the head area mm-hmm. and then the arm. And so I'm mm-hmm. wondering if it possibly was somebody who was maybe a paraplegic 
and was dragging themselves to go from one Mm -hmm. area to the next because that would make sense in terms of the way that the rest of the body looked, kind of like in that slug formation. So if there wasn't any ability to utilize your legs, Mm -hmm. they would just kind of be dragging behind you. So maybe it would look more that way. Yeah, that's the only thing that I can figure is maybe it was something in relation to that. And it could have been residual and yeah, and so that's what made me, because at first when I started looking at it, it almost looked like, you know how cameras can make like the light kind of refract, especially if you're using night vision. And sure. This yeah. this area looks like it's more light for a minute, mm-hmm. and then it goes to dark. And so at first, that's what I thought I was looking at. It's just some mm-hmm. kind of weird, like the play of light. The pixels are trying to put themselves together. Right. But then as it tilted to a certain way, it, it became a lot clearer. And, and you like could you said, clearly you could see that arm make out. out. Yes, like it you was could, dragging itself. Yeah, you could clearly make out that there was some kind of form to this. It right. wasn't just a mist, but it also didn't have enough form that I would believe that it was a real person that was... Yeah, definitely not. So whatever it was, it wasn't fully manifesting Mm-mm. in a physical form. No. A little girl named Lily is said to have been born at the asylum and now haunts the hallways and plays with toys left for her. She lived to be nine years old and then died. Another version of the story claims that she was dropped off by her parents and abandoned. Her spirit is seen as a full-bodied apparition wearing a white dress. Her disembodied giggling is sweet, but also very unnerving. Lily's room, which is full of scattered toys, is located on the first floor of Ward 4 in the eastern corner. A music box in this room plays on its own, and Lily interacts with guides. Usually this manifests with balls rolling across the floor by themselves. She also will turn off and on flashlights when asked... I just had a total flash of Victoria from the lift. (laughs) Totally. That's totally what I was thinking. Hello, this is Victoria from victoriaslift.com. Now, there are no clear records. So a lot of this information about Lily, let me just say two things here. Number one is the first report came from a psychic. So you know how I feel about psychics. Maybe you're the real deal. Maybe you're not. Right. I don't know that this is a true story if you can't give me physical historical documentation to go with it. Exactly. I'm not necessarily just going to believe you because you say there's a little girl in a white dress standing over there and you're a psychic and can see her. Right. Can you show me that there was a Lily who lived here in the documentation paperwork somewhere? As far as I know, nobody can do that. Also, sometime later, I think it was in a newspaper or magazine, they decided to have some fun. And as these stories go, somebody made up a story about Lily. And <laughs> Not what, surprising. what had become of her, it kind of was along the lines of her being abandoned by her parents or dropped off, I think, or something like that. And so a lot of people started going forward with, this is the story about Lily. And then you go back and find sure. out it was just some guy who <laughs> decided to make up the story to go flesh it out a little bit more. Urban legends. Yeah. So <laughs> what could have been maybe a true story he fictionalized And then people were going with the fictionalized version as this is the truth. Right. So I don't know that there is any child actually in this room. Because here's the interesting thing we also have to keep in mind. This is an asylum. And who would have been put in the asylums other than just the mentally ill, the mentally disabled? So are we talking about an adult who had the mind of a child? Well, that's true. So they would want to play with toys. One story claims a patient named Jane Harvey killed herself in the asylum and is said to haunt it now. On the first floor is the spirit of a patient named Ruth, who apparently hated men. It is said that she still hates men and tends to throw things at them during investigations. A Civil War ghost named Jacob hangs out on the fourth floor of the main building. A murderer named Slewfoot was murdered himself and now apparently is haunting the place, particularly in the shower area where he was killed. That, to me, is terrifying. 
I love doing investigations, but if I was someplace showering or using the restroom, I don't want to have any interactions there. No. And I mean, gosh, we talk about it all the time. I can't believe how haunted bathrooms are. I know. So yeah. No, thank you. Ward F housed the most aggressive male patients and Ward C housed the most dangerous female patients. Patient named Joe was one of those who was violent and he decided to take his fury out on a lobotomized patient named Charlie. A former employee claimed that Joe had been a serial killer before coming to the asylum. The portals of Hell Show referred to the victim as Dean, so we're not sure what his name really was, because on that show, they said it was Dean. This former employee says Charlie. I would okay. kind of go with the former employee, because they probably would right. know better. She said that she knew the men. There was also, I think on Ghost Adventures, they had a former employee... Yeah, I think so. I think it was Ghost Adventures. She came in, former employee, and said that there were two men who were killed in this way that I'm about to tell you. Mm, mm-hmm. But i that's the only time I'd ever heard that story before. So Hard I, to say. Yeah, I mean, these I former... I mean, one could be a nickname, too. Charlie could be a nickname. Yeah. A and, middle name. Yeah, and these former employees are older, so I don't know how right. well their recall might be, too. Could be. And anything that comes off of Ghost Adventures, I always, <laughs> I don't necessarily go with them There's for fact. There's a big, huge question mark <laughs> yeah. on the top of it. <laughs> Are they playing it up a little bit? Because I've never heard of two people having this happen. But anyway, here's what's going to happen. It's horrible. A nurse recalled that Joe got some other patient to help him string Charlie up to an overhead pipe in an attempt to hang him. They lowered Charlie to the floor, angry because this didn't kill him or right. do whatever it was supposed to do. Right, I think he but he didn't die. So they put him down on the floor. They pick up a metal framed bed and put the leg against his forehead. And then they jump up and down on the bed, driving that bedpost into Charlie's skull. Charlie's spirit is believed to have remained here because obviously of this tragic event. Just awful. What horrific. Happened here. Absolutely horrific. And this just goes to show you how bad the overcrowding is here, because how are these people even able to be near All each together, other? Because I wasn't, quote unquote, Charlie. Mm-hmm. Wasn't he? He's lobotomized. Yeah. And so he why was, would he be in the aggressive patient area? And I think he was of the mentality of a child at yes. that point. So, yep. Ay, horrible. Username Knight1431 on TripAdvisor in March 2020 said. So just last month. Yeah, just last month. I got touched down my face while walking on the first floor, heading to the Civil War area of the wing. Stopped me dead in my tracks. Filmed activity in Lily's room and got activity on my mail meter while talking to the Sarge in the Civil War section of the asylum. I also picked up anomalies on the fourth floor in the addiction section of the wing with my SLS camera. So I just thought that was interesting because this is very, very recent. Right. And just talking about some of the other activity that people have gotten, just somebody on TripAdvisor commenting, hey, I got some weird stuff going on. Definitely. And we're going to get there eventually. We will. We will, because if we're going to go up that way the next time we go into West Virginia, I'd love to go to Moundsville, too, because that looks like an amazing jail to check out. (laughs) And I really do want to redo that show because the episode that we did with that, I was joined by a listener on a cell phone that was really, really muffled and hard to hear. Right. The audio quality on that one, I do not like. So I want to redo the Moundsville episode, but I'd love to do it. Well, not necessarily redo it, but just do... An a revisit, yeah. Kind of like what I did with too. Waverly Hills. Sure. Return to Waverly Hills, we'll do exactly. a return to Brownsville. Yeah. There are so many tales of experiences at the asylum. It would seem almost everyone who enters either feels something, sees something, or experiences something. Is the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum haunted? That, that is, is for, for you, you to, to decide. decide. 
like you said, Kelly, we're definitely going to be checking that out one of these days. <laughs> Hopefully sooner rather than later. I know. There's I know so after... many other places. <laughs> We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historygoesbump.com. And if you want to send us some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We've been getting a lot of email lately from those of you who've just found the show and you've really been enjoying it while you're sitting at home trying to find things to distract yourself with and uh, sending us suggestions for episodes that you'd love to hear. So, And we love that. We've been adding those to the list. We want to thank you guys for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by Kobo Audiobooks, the History or His Story podcast, and our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Karen Miller for upping her donation. Mort added a silver-plated door to your garden, Tim. Oh, excellent. Yeah, he's like, okay, he's well, handy. I can't move her into a mausoleum, <laughs> but I need to do something special for her garden, Tim. So, yeah, silver-plated door. Awesome. We also want to welcome into the cemetery Dana Felton. We're going to be putting you under an obelisk headstone. And Amy Prem, you're going to be buried in a chest tomb. Thank you so much, you guys. It really goes so far to help us produce this podcast. We really appreciate you guys signing up at Patreon. Sweet dreams. Are you gonna take a sip? Take a sip. You were staring me like, down. <laughs> you were staring me down. I don't do that. Is that better? Yeah, are you ready? I'm ready. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> Seriously, go ahead. Okay. I'll, I'll zip it. Finding a large group of skeletons frozen in a lake some 18,000 years... 1,800... <laughs> I told you I always had a zero. I, <laughs> I don't know why. Oh my gosh. That was for many years home to the mentally ill and other unfortunate souls. I totally was singing <laughs> Ursula when when I wrote that out. I was like, and now as Ursula would say, poor unfortunate souls yes. in pain, in need. The former asylum is located at 71 Alyssum Drive. <laughs> Where? Alyssum? Boy, you just went right ahead and made up your own street name there. I did. The former asylum is located at 71 Asylum Drive. Joe Jordan bought the property for $1.5 in 200... 
207. Now I'm taking away a zero. You just have problems with numbers, <laughs> Kelly. <laughs> I'm not a mathematician. I was told there'd be no math. <laughs> this project started in the early... Oh, excuse me. I'm going to keep that in and you're going to be so embarrassed. I didn't fart. I know you did, but your mouth did. <laughs>